scale matters. And that became a mantra for the company, as did a phrase that we started talking about, uh, which is simply that growth is actually defensive as much as it is offensive in this new environment. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Greg Bates and Bob DeWitt from GID, the Boston-based vertically integrated real estate investment manager. Today's episode seems to be a story about generational transitions at GID, but it's really about transitions in our business writ large. I use the plural of the word transitions since most obviously today's episode is the story of Greg succeeding Bob as the CEO at GID. You'll get to hear the story of their baton passing, but the more interesting story is first the transition in the business that Bob really led back in the 90s through the 2000s as GID and others institutionalized their businesses and therefore led to the professionalization and scaling, if you will, in their case in the apartment business, but just an example of the institutionalization of all the major food group sectors in commercial real estate. And then to keep with that transitions theme, Greg talks about the realization as their team looked at the generational shift at GID, that GID had to scale up even further as still a mid-sized company to compete with the Blackstones, Brookfields, and Starwoods now gargantuan capital base as part of what Greg described as real estate's transition from an alternative asset class into a primary asset class. And one of my favorite quotes from the episode, and you'll know this is one of my favorite themes, as Greg said, it's all about operating platform. Capital appreciation was the driver of our business in the past. Going forward, our performance will be defined by operational excellence. And in furthering the transitions theme, I have a transition in my business, and therefore also in the sponsorship of Leading Voices. And I'm announcing that my firm, Terra Search Partners, has just become part of the global talent advisory firm, ZRG Partners, where we will together build our combined real estate practice globally. The resources and opportunities with ZRG are tremendous to build our global real estate practice. And as we're just rolling this out, we'll invite you to learn more at zrgpartners.com, still at terrasearchpartners.com, And as this is coming together, I'll share more about our new practice on the podcast in the coming months. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. As always, I'd ask you to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues in the business, and please rate us on your favorite podcast app. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, please feel free to email me. I can still best be reached at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Bob and Greg. Bob and Greg, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am really pleased to have you on the show to talk about your business, your careers, and the passing of the baton succession that the two of you have recently completed. In this case, when I think of succession, I think of two things. Um, It's obvious one succession from one leader to another, and that's what we all think about. But actually, you're succeeding at a time of massive change in the industry. So a succession or evolution of business model equally to individuals. And I will tell you in the audience, I have been watching the TV show Succession, which is a cartoonish example of egos dealing with what is really a normal pathway. And you guys get to talk about a normal pathway that's gone really, really well and not about ego, I hope. And so uh, we'll have a really interesting conversation today. Let's start with each of you introducing yourself so our listening audience knows your voices and maybe 
Bob, you start for a sec, and then Greg, and then we'll keep going. Sure. Well, I'm Bob DeWitt, and I've been at GID for 35 years. And prior to that, I was at Winthrop Financial Associates, which was a real estate syndication firm based here in Boston. I've had only two companies that I've worked for in my entire career, which was a luxury. As a background, I went to uh, the Tuck Business School up in Hanover, New Hampshire. And I got interested in real estate when I took a real estate course my second year, uh-huh. uh, spring term. And I, I saw in real estate a nexus between investment banking and investing in real estate in the hard assets, the tangible hard assets, the cash flowing assets. And that was a great appeal to me. So I was lucky to find a job at, uh, at Winthrop uh-huh. when I got out of Tuck. And that went great for five years. I learned a lot. I was very busy. I was a VP of acquisitions. And then came along the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which changed the entire reason for being for syndicators. I knew then I needed to go to a vertically integrated real estate operating company and was really fortunate to find GID at the time. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Cool. And of course, for any of you who are listening, who remember what the real estate industry was like in the late 80s, Uh, It was a very unsophisticated industry. The uh, current version of the public REITs had yet to emerge. They they started coming out in 1992 and 1993. Mm -hmm. And the technology that was available to all of us in order to gather market-relevant information, competitive information, even supply-demand information in particular markets. Uh, We all take for granted today that you can go online and mine local permitting offices to determine what kind of property developments are on the horizon. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do that back in in the late 80s. It was just a very different, much less sophisticated of business. In fact, Matt, uh, you'll get a kick out of this because you and I are about the same age. Uh, At GID, we had one personal computer and it was on a push cart Mm -hmm. and we would move it around to whoever seemed to need it. And the CEO at the time would on occasion come looking for the cart. And if it was not being used at that exact moment, had the ammunition to refuse to add a second uh, PC to the to the organization. So that, that just gives you a little bit of an idea of how unsophisticated the world was, yep. the world of business and the world of real estate. Cool. And Craig? So it's nice to be here, Matt. Thanks. Thank uh, you. Also nice to be with Bob. You know, Bob and I went from being almost inseparable for five years, and now uh, we speak on a weekly basis. So this is actually nice for us, too. So thanks for inviting us. My career, like Bob's, is pretty simple. I spent basically almost 17 years uh, at GE, uh, the vast majority of which were in their real estate group. And then I left after the GFC and was one of the first people out because I saw a market opportunity to invest at, at the down cycle and went to a local Connecticut shop and ran their investment management business and did that until Bob and I had lunch. I think Bob, it was probably in I don't know, summer of 2016, and we began discussions uh, about joining uh, GID. And then uh, in January of 2017, I started here and, and have been here since and, uh, and I absolutely love it. That's great. So usually 
we, we tell the stories from the beginning, but I want to tell the story from the end here or hear the story from the end game. And it's really in your succession and, Greg, in, in your business there, it's a kind of what problem are you really trying to address discussion. And I'm curious how you place this point in time and your company in this point in time. And I'll let you get started. Yeah, so that's a big question. So, you know, if we talk about the macro environment Mm -hmm. and really harken back to the initial conversations Bob and I had when I first started, we were really focused on where the industry was going. I had participated in a conversation with one of the big banks on the rise of the mega manager in real estate. And, you know, if you can turn back the clock to that time period, M&A activity among investment managers was picking up. And it was clear the industry was entering a new phase. So today we're actually living through real estate's transition from an alternative asset class into a primary asset class that I believe at least takes its logical place in between, you know, bond and equity portfolios uh, among institutional and retail investors. So, you know, what I've told people is when you try to envision what's happening in real estate, consider how. Fidelity and Vanguard disrupted the public equities market with low-cost mutual funds or the emergence of ETFs, or think about how PIMCO and BlackRock did the same and disrupted the bond market. Their strategies were simply to provide investors with index-level exposure Mm -hmm. at a very low cost to the asset class. And if you observe Blackstone, in particular, obviously, BREIT, which gets lots of press these days, uh, but also Starwood and now KKR and Nuveen and others, this trend is transforming real estate. So we're living in this transition period away from closed end value add and opportunity funds that are targeting high teens IRRs, really to perpetual capital vehicles that provide investors with index level exposure to the asset class. And that is a big change. You know, when I look back at January 2017, when I started at GID, this was Bob and my primary challenge. And we sat and spoke for hours upon hours about it. And when we think about, you know, where we had to take the company in this new environment, Mm -hmm. scale matters. And that became a mantra for the company, as did a phrase that we started talking about, uh, which is simply that growth is actually defensive as much as it is offensive in this new environment. So expanding our business, I believe, protected our core franchise. It enabled us to actually produce better returns and be more competitive, more operationally efficient in our core business, as well as growing. So that became you know, a significant advantage for us, right? The ability to invest across asset classes to do more in multifamily and to have that expanded breadth and depth of the platform that I think really gave us visibility into pricing by market, pricing by product. And we were able, I think, to transition away from thinking about core apartments on an absolute basis to really assessing relative value across 24-7 markets, growth markets, class B, class A, development. So all that market intelligence, I think, really helped uh, transform the company. And, you know, the last kind of comments I'll give you, Matt, I think we've all seen Mm -hmm. the capital appreciation that drove total returns over the last 20 years 
is not what will define the next 20 years in the space, right? Our performance will be defined by operational excellence. The best managers are going to have to combine high tech mm-hmm. by creating operating efficiencies, et cetera, but also leveraging high touch that we've been so good at in the past to have kind of concierge-like service levels. So how do you become that high-tech, high-touch company? And that is one of the requirements, I think, for us in the future. But, you know, I, I think about our, our business and our competition a little bit like a dumbbell, right? And you have one end of the dumbbell with small niche players. I think they can continue to thrive if you're a local data center or life sciences group or a regional developer Uh, And then you look at the other spectrum with the Blackstone example we gave of the large mega managers, the challenge resides for those mid-market folks in between that have neither the scale nor the focused niche. And, you know, that was one of the uh, decisions we made in looking at where the industry would move. And we're trying very hard to have that large scale where we get all the benefits and efficiencies of size but we never lose that entrepreneurial mindset of being a local local operator. So, you know, think about that Goldilocks scenario of trying, you know, not to be too small, not to be too big and become an index player or a fee manager. That's really where our focus is today, right? Let's stay in a certain number of business lines that we know well and try to always focus on principal return and outperformance versus scale for scale's sake Mm -hmm. and staying just in those top markets in the U.S. uh, and very specific and we hope very complementary asset types. So that's kind of our response to where we're going and really was, I think, Bob, the crux of most of our conversations for, for five years. It's really interesting. You start with strategy, right? You start with the overview. You start at 100,000 feet, not 10,000 feet. You're going to get to 10,000 feet, but there's perspective on where the world's going and how you have to respond to it. Change was happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the change was, was coming about at a, at a variety of levels within the business. Technology was being created that could be utilized by operating companies and reams in order to make themselves more efficient. There was available much more market level data that could be sliced and diced to inform investors as to which markets would offer ultimately the the, the best long-term returns. Mm -hmm. All of these things were unavailable to us, you know, when we started our careers, uh, respectively, you know, 23 and 35 years ago. And they have evolved to the point where uh, firms like ours can utilize those in order to accomplish uh, that what Greg was just outlining. Mm -hmm. So that's important. The one thing Greg will spend some time on, I'm sure, in this podcast is not losing sight of the importance of the vibrancy of a corporate culture, which takes the strategy that is developed and is now being executed and makes it a reality. Right. And if you have the best people, the best technology, the best access to data, and you can make them all work together in a very constructive and productive way, that's what's going to mark, you know, a successful enterprise on the go forward basis. Yeah. Let me push on one of your points, because you said if you have the best this, best that, best the other, I don't think it has to be the best. 
I think if you, because right now there's some democratization about data and information and technology, actually. If you have all of them really, really good, as good as anybody else, not the best, but you have all of it put together in what I call a business platform, then I think it works. And it's how you knit the almost best of everything together that makes a platform sing. I, I don't know that you'll ever know if you have the best. Right. You know, you strive for the best and you settle for very, very good. Yeah. But you, you never stop striving to implement the best uh, technology or the best data analytics or whatever it is. Right. But I agree with you. I mean, obviously, it's probably impossible to have the best of everything. Yeah, it can't. Right. But it's a, it's a balanced team and it's a balanced process. So let me let me ask a different question because our audience doesn't know you guys. So let's go kind of sideways for a minute and then we're going to come back to some of the subjects that, that Greg touched on. But just help us give an overview of your platform. And Greg, when you said that you're going to do different asset classes, most of that comment was within the multifamily sector. I know you do industrial too. But if you could talk about the asset classes you're in, about, uh, types of properties, asset classes, platform, vertically integrated, and the kinds of investors that you have, that would be helpful. Sure. So GID, by way of background, is a 60-plus-year-old private company. We're based in Boston, but we've got primary offices in Atlanta, Dallas, and San Francisco, you are right. We are vertically integrated. So we've got a deep history as a multifamily investor, owner, operator, and are extraordinarily focused on that platform that we have. So I think it's a special sauce for us. But people think of us, I think, as a core apartment owner and operator. The reality is we actually have deep experience in the value add space. We have uh, deep experience decades long as an apartment developer. And so those are important parts of the business. And they kind of gave rise to us entering the class B space in a big way, which I mentioned earlier. So now in the apartment space, we either develop with our own in-house teams we do a lot of joint venture development. We obviously have the class A core funds that people know quite well with OPERF and CalPERS and a, a large class B business as well now. So multifamily is established and solid. What you might not know is that the firm has 30 plus years as an industrial investor. And again, as that uh, developer, which is uh, the third leg of our stool out of four legs. And so when you think of those three business lines, multifamily industrial development, they have a very long storied history at the company. And then our most recent business line, uh, which the press got word of, I would say we announced it, but we really didn't, we got caught building it. We are entering the credit space and we believe that's quite synergistic to what we do in the other three verticals and feel like credit and having a debt fund is very complementary to our core capabilities and also an important business line, not just for our company, but for our investors to get the diversification they need out of the real estate sector. And that, Matt, you had also, I think, asked about our types of investors. And that's important because we have to spend a great deal of time marrying our core capabilities with the needs of our investors. And so we spend a lot of time learning what our investors need and want out of the sector. Mm -hmm. And to the extent we think that we uh, <clears throat> have a unique competitive advantage, we'll provide that. 
And to the extent we don't, we actually help our investors think about, you know, how to go to market through other people to access certain products. So that's a little bit of an overview. Yeah. And go back to credit for a second. Is that credit into multifamily and industrial? Is that credit across real estate asset classes? We will focus on multifamily and industrial. I think it'll be 40% of what we do, Mm -hmm. but it is multi-asset class and really focused out of the gate on large loans to the best kind of sponsors in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I want to come back again to the changes in the industry, but one last question about your business is that you're family owned. So talk about the Wallace family and their involvement and what it means to be family owned versus public versus just partnership, whatever the right, the alternatives are. How does that influence your business? I'm going to give you one comment, and then I bet Bob has great perspective here, too, given the decades of being a part of it. I think the single greatest attribute of being a private family-owned company is we invest significant amounts in all of our vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so ingrained in our psyche here is a long-term principal investor outlook. So if you think about the money we manage for others, we share that same perspective. We're investing generationally, just like the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds for whom we manage their money. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that is an important differentiator. No one in our company is paid a share of fee profits, right? We have never done that historically we share only in outsized profits from the incentives we earn on the funds. And we're aligned 100% with the family ownership that wants principal returns on large co-investments and our investors. So I I think that's part of what makes GID a special place. Well, I I would agree with all that you said and and just add that, again, the business was founded in 1960. Mm -hmm. So it has a long and successful a tenured history. So as Greg said, you know, we, we participate uh, in the profits generated through all of our investment activities. Right. And so that creates great alignment of interest between uh, the ownership, the Walls family and the employees. So, you know, you think about what was attractive initially when we started our separate account business back in 1993 to the pension fund world. And it was that you had, a thir- at that point, a 33-year-old enterprise um, that had stability, that had a solid balance sheet, mm-hmm. that was committed to reinvesting uh, profits and capital from the balance sheet into those investment activities that we we're doing with uh, those investors. So they drew great comfort from the fact that, that we had money to lose as well as profits to share. But all of the members of the family that are involved in any capacity in in the oversight of the enterprise are extraordinarily intelligent. They're fair. They're reasonable. They're thoughtful. uh, They're very considerate. Gardner Wallace as chairman and I as vice chair, president, CEO for 24 years really never encountered a single instance in which the family declined to pursue a business initiative that we presented. So in that regard, you know, we've had just a wonderful partnership with right. these capital providers, the Wallace family. It's been it's been a great relationship. I think in, in some regards, we look like a public company right. um, who's going through succession. And every good high quality public company and evergreen private company 
has to go through this and has to go through a, a very rigorous and thoughtful succession analysis and plan. And GID began that process over 10 years ago. And this is the culmination of that at the CEO level. Mm-hmm. But we've applied it uh, to many positions along the way. So it works. Yeah. Last question about this, which is succession within the family itself. In some family offices, if that's the right word, or families are, and you've described this as a highly functional family, but they have to do a lot of internal planning so that their own succession of generations doesn't come in and mess up the business. And either hands-on, hands-off, lots of different issues. How, how do they manage themselves around that? Not manage themselves around real estate, but around that those subjects. The senior Wallaces have spent a lifetime inculcating into the second and third generations that the expectation of that this is a perpetual evergreen privately owned enterprise. You know, Matt, it's, it is interesting, you know, family companies can take on all shapes and sizes. That is the diligence that you do before you join a family company. And I, I was immensely impressed when I joined GID with all the thought that surrounded what Bob just talked about and their version of an evergreen company in succession planning and how the family interfaces with the company. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have such a close-knit family that has really shared values with the values of the leadership team, mm-hmm. you know, it can get tricky. But you do, when you work for this place, you feel like a member of the family. And when you first started talking about things, Bob started with corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And man, what a great place to start, because that is everything here. We talk at length about people and purpose to make sure that we have the right folks, the right purpose and mission as a company. And, And it's critical that's aligned with the family. Yeah. So let's move on to a couple of the themes that came up in the early part of the conversation. And I want to touch on two primarily One is I want to think about time horizon on investments and how that may be changing. Either time horizon or, Greg, as you said, hey, this is perpetual investment, perpetual portfolios. What does all that mean? What does that mean for what has been trading velocity in the business? Um, And then I want to talk about business platform. But maybe start there in terms of returns. Do returns become more moderate returns as an asset class for real estate? And how do you deal with that? But maybe I'll share some views on pricing and this evolution we're seeing. We've always discussed real estate as sharing bond-like attributes with equity appreciation potential, right? That's as old a story as can be. But given that profile, shouldn't real estate returns then trade somewhere between bonds and equities? Well, in the past, they didn't. Why? There was no transparency into the real estate market. There was illiquidity in the real estate market. There were tremendous swings and cycles in real estate. That has changed quite a bit. Now, if you look at public REITs, I would argue you get better data and transparency out of real estate operating companies than any other business you could invest in. And so I think that evolution has allowed us to ask the question, where should real estate trade? And we, in particular, have done a lot of research on multifamily as as well as industrial, but I'll give you the simple multifamily example. Multifamily has about a 0.6 beta to the S&P 500. 
So dramatically less volatility than the S&P 500. And if you look at the world and say triple B bonds today, now we're in a weird point in the world here with right. geopolitical issues and macroeconomic issues and inflation, but just imagine a steady state could exist today. Triple B bonds are kind of in the very low 3% range. And the S&P is forecast to throw off seven or seven and a half over the long term. So if multifamily has a 0.6 beta to the S&P 500, and it provides a dividend yield the same or greater than bonds, where should it trade within that spectrum? And I think what you're seeing is on, a, on an absolute basis, pretty scary cap rates, but intellectually and academically, pretty rational cap rates. Mm-hmm. If apartments trade at a three and a half and you get three points of growth, you effectively over a long term will get about a six and a half percent unlevered return. That's probably where apartments should trade. And as allocations to the real estate sector increase and all of a sudden real estate becomes a primary asset class, I think you're seeing that. I think you're seeing institutions want real estate over the long term for those types of returns. And you're seeing retail investors flock to the space just looking for exposure to US real estate. Mm -hmm. So my view is this is where apartments probably should trade. Things do get a little frothy. We see some stuff in the markets we don't like, uh, but I think they're transient. But the days of trading real estate are probably going to be slightly more subdued. And that's logical to me. I mean, the costs of buying and selling real estate are real. And having been someone who ran opportunity funds in my past, right when we fixed an asset and got it to the point where you wanted to own it for forever, you then had to turn and sell it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it was uh, nice because you got your promote, but disheartening because you knew your investors should own that for the long term. So does that squeeze out the value-add model to some degree where you have close-end funds and a lot of trading going on to assets you really wanted to keep in the first place, just upgrade them? I think the value-add business model is harder today. And that's largely because if you look at these perpetual funds, and they can be Odyssey funds or the sector-specific funds, there's an allocation for kind of value add within those. So all those vehicles will be core plus, but the way they get to core plus is being 85% core and 15% either development or repositioning or value add. And their cost of capital is simply lower than a pure value add fund. So I think the value add guys really do have to have a niche or a special sauce or some angle because increasingly they're gonna be competing against very large players with more access to capital and a lower cost of capital. Right, it's like the build to core concept, but value add to core instead of value add to sell and flip. And then the less transactional cost and that business model probably works better. You're just buying a B, keeping it as a B and it's okay. Bingo. The logical extension of that, Matt, is that the more assets that need to be renovated or improved in some fashion mm-hmm. with better management, the more of those that get into the hands of the capable operators, the fewer opportunities are left 
So the longer this takes place, and it has been taking place now for 30 years, the fewer opportunities really are available until there are huge dislocations like in the retail space. You know, you've got what are all the big regional malls and the neighborhood malls going to look like in five years or 10 years? That's very different than the multifamily and the industrial space that we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, and just one other comment about, you know, where we've gone in terms of the place where real estate should trade. Keep in mind that in Europe for the longest period of time, mm-hmm. real estate was really um, serving the role as a repository for capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not being invested in for increasing cash flows and capital appreciation. It was capital preservation primarily. Right. So they've they've always had lower cap rates than than we've had in the United States. Now, we're not going all the way there. We, we are uh, going to be, I think, uh, where Greg indicated, somewhere between the fixed income securities and, and the equities. It, that's all very logical. And it's been methodical in terms of how it's happened, starting with the 1993 advent of the modern read era. Mm-hmm. That's when capital, both retail and institutional capital, got very, began to get more comfortable with the quality of management and the availability of really good information and data. Um, and that's, that's when the institutionalization of real estate uh, really began in earnest. And uh-huh. this is a logical evolution. Which segues to the next question, which is this business platform question. And it really gets to the differentiation between different larger operators and their ability to have an end-to-end business platform maybe the best. Or, every, you know, the bar is raised for everybody. And so talk about that in your vertically integrated business. Talk about a little bit of technology. Talk about culture. You've mentioned all these words. How does that all knit together? When you look at technology today, mm-hmm. it almost becomes a baseline requirement for operating efficiency. It can be big data. We all like to talk about big data. I talk with our teams about little data and mm-hmm. say, let's all actually perfect the little data and run the business better before we think about the holy grail uh, of big data but that and then the technology on the front end of the business uh, is transformative with what our residents are seeking and so that was the combination i mentioned before about how do we come high tech but also remain that high level of service that we have and i think the way you do it is really trying to take all the menial tasks and we either centralize those, automate them, or we outsource them at the property level. And then we provide things like self-guided tours for residents. And Matt, think about it this way, right? You want to pump your own gas and get in and out of there quickly, right? You want to check yourself out at the grocery store. You can actually shift tasks Mm -hmm. to prospects and residents away from our own staff and leave the resident with a better experience than if we were to do it. So that is a win-win for everybody in the future. And then we take what might be fewer people at a property level, right? You've always had five or six people working a 300 unit apartment project say, but we can actually have fewer people, but transition them more into a resident relations world, right? Where we're talking about amenities and services and concierge-like mm-hmm. behavior with our staff at the property level. I think that's a pretty special change. 
Our jobs are more rewarding. We can pay people more for that higher level of service and our residents are happier. So, you know, that's ultimately what we're driving for. And it'll take, I'd say, three to five years for the industry to really make great strides in that direction. I'm guessing most of the larger players of scale would say much the same thing that you just said. And so I'm wondering for you how that differentiates yourself in terms of stickiness with employees, stickiness with residents, or OPEX, which may be going the same direction for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think we will all end up moving similarly down a path towards technology. Yeah. But just like everything in the world, the way you manage that transition and the way you try to retain your culture is going to be the big differentiator. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that high service, high touch part of it becomes very important. And you can see some people embracing technology, I think, are doing it well in our sector and others are trying to figure out how do I reduce labor expense through technology and outsourcing? Right. And that is a part of the answer at best, because ultimately residents have a choice. And today the markets are all full and they don't have much choice. But mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time, residents have a choice and the switching cost isn't much. So you've got to be better than everybody else. It's interesting. I had a conversation. This was in Boston, actually, and it was with an old line company. And we were talking about, this is nitty gritty, but we were talking about turnover of employees at the site level in the multifamily business. And this old line company in Boston said, turnover? They, no one leaves. Now, that's actually a negative because you have the calcified person behind the front desk and, boy, you don't want them there. But in the institutional world, turnover is 50%, whatever, 40% per year of employees as well as residents. And if you could turn that by 10, 15, 20% in terms of loyalty or stickiness, then that really does hit the bottom line. And I'm also guessing that as you knit together your business platform with all the technologies and culture stuff, that it's a harder switching cost for an employee to jump from one of these places in terms of how they've integrated all this together to another. So, Matt, you hit on one of the key things. You know, in the industry, you're right. In the, in the management companies, turnover is tremendously high. We have turnover levels that depending on the year, can be as much as a thousand basis points below our peers. Hmm. So if the industry is running at 32%, we might run at 22. Now the great resignation bumped everybody's numbers up, Right. but this is one of the most important thing. When we talk about people and purpose, a big part of that is making sure that the people that we care deeply about who are our employees stay with us. Because if you don't, think about, if you're trying to grow at 20% a year, and you have 30% turnover, well, 40% of your people could be new in any given year between the new hires and the turnover. Right. And if you're a thousand plus people in a management company and you're talking about 400 new faces every year, you become a hiring and a training company. Right. And so it, using technology so that, not that we have to reduce jobs, you don't. It's just less backfilling as you grow, right? You're not actually letting people go. You're just slowing the pace of new hires. Right. So if we can do that and provide a more rewarding job for people so there's less burnout and retention is longer, that is the answer for us. And 
we keep coming back to how do we recognize and reward our people and make this a place that nobody ever wants to leave. Cool. It's not the Roach Motel. They can't. <laughs> um, hey, let's totally change the subject around this. And Greg, this is in yet another segue, but it's a segue to your background because when we talk about people, culture, platform, at least 20 years ago, the company everyone thought about was GE. So I want to talk about your career at GE, at GE Capital before coming to GID. And what did you learn from the best times that that company had? So I started there in one of their management training programs. Uh, and it is a spectacular kind of leadership training and management training company. The, the ethos of the company is oriented around that leadership. And the company really taught you how to run businesses and they taught you how to grow businesses. And, you know, those core principles are transferable across industries. And so, you know, I think about what Bob and I were focused on doing here together for years is still what I'm doing now, which is, you know, strategy focus, no, no strategy drift, setting goals, managing people, really measuring processes and driving accountability on the few things that really change the business and not letting us wander. You know, that focus and discipline is so important. And, uh, you know, the other thing I loved about GE in its best years is we were always growing. And the energy that a growth company throws off is remarkable. The number of promotions, new opportunities, stretch assignments that come out really do energize your employee base and create a lot of optimism and, and retention. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, foundationally, I think a lot of what we learned at GE, even though the company went through some very tough times afterwards, was kind of best in class and things that you hang on to and are embedded in your psyche as a manager. Mm-hmm. And how much was your learning kind of basics of real estate and real estate investment and how much did they layer on this management training stuff, which I don't think during those years existed almost anywhere else? People in GE Capital were moved from business to business. I, I lived in 11 different homes uh, in nine years when mm-hmm. I was from out of college until I got I think until our second child was born. And so you were always on the move. Real estate was different. People who got into real estate got in, they stayed in, and they were kind of in pillar jobs, doing them for decades even. And it was just one of those special businesses that got in people's blood and they didn't want to leave. And when outsiders came in, like I did back when we bought Security Capital, every kind of everyone gave you a weird look when you came through the door. So how many years before real estate were you there and then real estate? So I spent four years there and then went to business school and came out and actually got into e-business and financial planning and analysis at GE Capital Corporate. Mm -hmm. And then about 18 months later, they bought Security Capital. And I was leaving to go work in M&A in the healthcare division, and they canceled that assignment and my move to Chicago and sent me over to the real estate group. And it didn't take long to fall in love and, and never want to leave real estate. And, and one of the things we know in the real estate business was a best and worst of times at the same time dealing with GE. So they were famous as a retrader in the business and kind of throwing their weight around in it in a painful way. And so talk about that and maybe that trying to change that culture too. 
It's so interesting. You know, Bob and I talk a lot about our incentive plans at the company here, and I'll contrast them with what we had at GE because we did retrade. We actually fixed it later in my career at GE, but it was a lasting lesson for me. We basically had originators that were paid to go source deals. And then when you do that, you have to have a gatekeeper somewhere. So we had risk and underwriting people independent from the originations arm. And so what happens is people aren't all aligned and the originators will cut a deal, shake hands in the marketplace, bring it up the line, and people will feel like they have to do their job and beat it down or change it. Or, well, if you want it in an auction, you must have paid the most. So right. go back and pay less. And that was a little bit of part of the culture for a while. And it's tricky. And it's why I think the funds model is the best alignment of interest you could have. Because when your employees all make a dollar, only when the company and the investors make a dollar at the end, right. you're all fighting the same thing. So at GID, and, and I, I give Bob great credit for creating this culture over 25 years, you can do a deal on a handshake with a leadership member of GID, because we all behave the same way and we're completely aligned. And it makes us quite different than the, the experience people had at GE. So I, look, you're right to mention it. And it's not for the fault of the people. It was really the organizational structure that gave rise to that. Structure and compensation drives behavior. For sure. It just does. Okay, change subjects again. How did the two of you meet? We met at a place an hour north of Georgia called Barnsley Resort. Okay. And it was hosted by Malcolm McComb at CBRE. And he brought together some leaders uh, from the multifamily space and wanted to have us all just get to know each other and share experiences and ideas and obviously, you know, hope for uh, new relationships. And, and that was at a time when the world was a little unstable and uh, real estate uh, was going through some, some challenges. And so, you know, we'd sit around a table and I remember, you know, Greg is there representing GE and I sort of expected uh, him to talk his book, you know, coming from a big public company. And yet he was very forthcoming, very articulate, evidenced a great understanding of the drivers of value and the dynamics of our business. Mm -hmm. But I, I liked the way he, uh, you know, shared his perspective uh, with the rest of us. And, you know, when, when uh, Greg and I got back together six years ago, when we started talking about a succession and planning a GID, the one concern I had was, well, how close is he to the operating side and the development side of real estate. He's always been a provider of equity capital at GE, but he did have the five years of experience with the firm in Connecticut. So that, that was uh, valuable, but it became uh, pretty clear to us, to Gardner Wallace and me, we thought, you know, there was a time when our particular personalities and leadership qualities and traits worked really well as we were building this company to the size it was. Now, what we really needed was someone who could uh, continue what we had done from an entrepreneurial perspective, mm -hmm. but bring a little more discipline and focus on uh, process and procedure. And 
So we thought, you know, the combination of his experience at GE and at the private firm in Connecticut was ideal for the next phase of GID's uh, growth. It's interesting because you talk about process and procedure. What I've heard through this conversation from Greg is some process and procedure, but a lot of strategy. So they're combined inextricably well. Yes. And we, strategy is, is the paramount. But that's a foundational aspect to any um, business success. But I took for granted that we could posit that strategy was uh, number one important. But Gardner and I were good at strategy, too. So, you know, what we needed to add was policy and process. You know, when I was at GE, I did not like the Six Sigma, the process orientation. Uh, my brain isn't quite wired that way. Um, but I always respected it, and those were always the people on my team that I held close to me because I knew it wasn't a tremendous skill set. And then as we decided to grow this business, you know, I was using the analogy with Bob and Gardner that you go from a job shop when you're a smaller company where everybody gets a chance to work on every widget at the same time, and you make the best decisions when you do those things, right? You can make the best widget on earth, but when you grow a company, you never want to be kind of a factory with an assembly line, but you do have to change and have more process orientation. So you have reliable, repeatable processes, and there can be a little more accountability and delegated authority as the business grows. That, you know, doing those things was the greatest challenge, right? We talk about the secession planning, the strategy shift, and then the operational execution. And interestingly to me, the secession planning was fairly smooth and uneventful, just given the years of preparation Bob and, and Gardner uh, had put into it. And so I think because we were so aligned on the future direction of the company, we were actually able to talk a lot about, okay, how do we execute this? And what are the operational steps required to get us there? And that was helped, I think, by the fact that when people come to GID, they just don't want to leave. And so when you think about, okay, Greg has to step into Bob's shoes, maybe that's a leap, that's going to take some time. Then you look at the team below me of, you know, what is now kind of 30 SVPs across four business lines. Mm -hmm. Those people were so ingrained in GID's culture and decades-long subject matter experts in their specific asset class that it gave me the ability to say, I've got to go do X. Now you guys own Y and Z. And you get nervous about that. And then you turn around six months later and look at them and you say, oh, my God, they're doing it better than I would have done it. Thank God I transitioned it to them because there's a wildly talented group. Let me ask you a question about that because there's a tension between longevity and the ability to change. So Greg, as you come in realizing that what got you here isn't going to get you there, which means there's going to be change afoot, how do you balance that long-term culture with the need for constant change as well? Well, we, look, it was one of the things I valued about the company when I came in. So your point that your greatest strength can also be a weakness is true, yep. right? And the flip side is, far more scary than stability, right? Which is a new team with six people come together. Nobody's ever going to give them money, right? So you need that stability and proven track record and shared values. And we had that. 
And every person we hired and brought in was handpicked because they had the same values we did. They didn't, doesn't mean they thought the same, right? right? We really valued diversity of experience, opinion, skill set, communication style, all of it. That's what created a high functioning team. But everyone had the same shared values and mission that we had as a company and in how we would all interact with one another. But the truth is, you know, you, you go in and you go on your first asset tour with people like Bob and the leadership team, and they're telling you the trash chutes are in the wrong places and it's under elevated and elevated and here are going to be the issues. And you think, man, I'm in trouble. These guys know more about apartments than anyone on earth. And, you know, that uh, was a real shift and a level of angst for me at the onset, uh, but it all worked out. Hey, well, th- there's always a danger of getting into the weeds too much. So you have to balance Again, we're talking about balance throughout this entire conversation, but it's the balance between the weeds and the strategy and the plan and the platform. And um, so that's that's a trick. Sometimes not knowing the weeds can help. Bob, don't you think that's a big strength of the company is just the the depth on the operational side and everything we do, which really was the focus of being vertically integrated. It, it was a mandate of Bob's actually when I came on that we're not going to enter a business unless we truly believe we have a competitive advantage and can go tell investors that we do things differently. And you have that. I think it's very important to understand all of the detail that aggregates to uh, drive value in our core competency business of multifamily. Everybody at GID, you know, the property management, the asset managers, uh, senior management had been uh, steeped in that to Greg's point. I mean, what is the length of a walk between where you park your car and you enter your apartment? And how do you get rid of your garbage? I mean, all of those kind of things, mm-hmm. you have to think about what the daily irritants to a resident would be on site right. and minimize those or eliminate those. But so that, that comes with just familiarity with, with that asset class. Getting back to your, your prior point, though, about you know the tension between the familiarity of long-term employees who understand how to work together because they know each other's personalities, they know each other's uh, foibles, they all know how to work effectively together. And and then the challenge of ensuring that you're bringing in real current best practices. And so, you know, Greg articulated how that uh, worked at GID, but but that's attention in every organization. Mm -hmm. You know, bring in some fresh ideas and don't be afraid uh, to recognize that some of those ideas really are better than the ones that you've been operating with, and you should implement those. And I think uh, what we've done at GID now is created an environment where uh, both can actually happen side by side. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting themes in this whole conversation is it's not about real estate investment. It's not about operations. It's not about technology. It's not about management of people. It's not about stewardship. It's all of that. And you have to be a leader across every one of those things to be successful in this. Before we move on, any other comments about how, how long, Greg, were you in the understudy role, if that's the right word for it? And what was that like? And kind of talk a little bit about that. Well, look, so there was certainly a trial period for sure. Uh, I mean, Bob was nice to say that maybe the decision was obvious, but, but I think more at the end than at the beginning, because I came in 
and you feel established in your career, but there's a real learning curve when you yeah. enter a new company. Uh, and so Bob endured that with me, as did Gardner. And that trial period was probably the best thing we ever did. Look, I didn't feel like I was trying out for a spot on a team. I felt comfortable that I could lead the organization, but with the recognition that I just wasn't ready yet at the moment. When you think you are, right, you always think you are, and you're always ready for the next job. But the process was a measured process, and I have far more respect for it on the other side of it than you have during it when you're impatient. Because I, I think Bob, Bob can say that we sat down a few times and I'm kind of like, all right, let's go. Let's get ready. And you feel that. But look, that, the best thing that happened to me, and I think to the organization as well, is Bob and Gardner and I would sit and talk for literally hours on end sometimes not even wrote remotely about business, but all of those conversations we had about life and family and political issues, whatever it was, we got to know each other well and the way we think and the way we tackle problems and issues. And that means a lot, right? To have that foundation and trust is probably a, a big part of it. And so I don't know how you can transition a family business to someone unless you've debated tough issues, you've disagreed and tried to reach consensus. I really do think that long measured process is important, but it can only happen with certain people, right? I mean, Bob and Gardner are both very kind and very gracious people and don't need the spotlight and don't have big egos. And so if you don't have that and someone has to be an autocrat and the buck has to stop on their desk and they've got mm -hmm. to be in the spotlight, it doesn't work. Nobody could do that for three, four five years. So the people here made the process work. It's really interesting. I've recruited for this job and people don't want this job because it looks like a free option on both sides. And then you make that investment and you're, Greg, you're betting that Bob's going to actually be able to let go, which half the leaders don't let go on the first try. It takes like the third or fourth try before they're really willing, okay, you're good enough, this is going to work, and I'm ready to roll. It's a hard thing. It wasn't as hard for us. Yeah. You know, one of the things Gardner and I were trying to accomplish with a three to five year transition was we didn't want to just uh, dictate to Greg and the new leadership team what the strategy should be. Uh -huh. So we wanted them to be inculcated into the culture of GID. And then we wanted to watch how they formulated what Gardner and I had already thought was an appropriate future strategy. We just didn't want to recite it. And, you know, and that's what happened. So as Greg has said a couple of times during this podcast, we would spend hours talking about what the benefits and the risks of, of different approaches uh, to growth uh, were. And I think we, by and large, always agreed. So, you know, that was, we're just really fortunate that that's the way it all uh, unfolded for us. Yeah. Having said that, there were a couple of times, to Greg's point, where I, I felt uh, Greg's fingerprints squirrely between my shoulder blades. <laughs> so let me, let me change subject again. And I, Bob, when I think of you, I think of someone who loves the industry. And I think of someone who's a steward and a leader in the industry. So I want to talk about the industry, not just the company and not, not just the investments. Uh, but you've been a leader in NMHC and you see, I, I 
believe that you see something in the apartment industry from a public policy standpoint and from a raising the bar across the industry that that leadership has helped accomplish. Do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Well, I think, you know, outside of running GID, uh, being engaged and involved in the leadership of NMHC um, was, uh, you know, the best uh, thing I've ever done. And it's really eye-opening when you think that we don't operate as an industry within the bounds of our own rules. We don't set the rules. The rules are set in so many ways by the market and by Washington. And we needed to have a voice on Capitol Hill that could serve to educate and inform our legislators and their staffs, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, you know, the whatever the incoming administration, HUD. We needed practitioners to be able to convey to legislators what the unintended consequences of legislation that they might be contemplating would have. So you know, GSE reform, very important during the great financial crisis, right? Ensuring that that we had access to debt capital was paramount to the survivability of our industry. And, you know, the the primary point of liquidity in the the system and the debt system was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So uh, there was risk that once they moved into conservatorship that they would shut down and you know, we're a highly capital intensive industry. And if the industry had been deprived of debt capital, who knows where it would have headed. There was not enough equity in the system to equitize uh, maturing loans. So, you know, just being involved and engaged with legislators to make them understand, you know, and the secretary of HUD to make him understand and for him to be able to take that message to President Obama at the time, Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was critical. It's an interesting point. You, you said the survivability of the industry was critical and the part of the issue. And it's interesting. I wonder at a time of a great housing shortage in our country, how we as an industry have both the general population as well as the legislators see us as partners, not and collaborators to solving these issues versus we have to survive, we have to make as much money as we can. That's Those are two totally different subjects. But going forward, I think that's going to matter the most, is being seen as a partner towards those goals. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's a certain group of politicians who, uh, and, and the public, who look at us as uh, as not a partner, but a source of the problem. Right. And and that's too bad. We, we have to work on that public relations issue mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. And that... Yep. That becomes uh, crystallized during rent control efforts at, at various state levels, because we're, we're portrayed, you know, as the profit-hungry private owner. And little do they know that we have, as our source of capital, retired public employees from uh, the states of Oregon and California. I think both on the issue of rent control and the issue of NIMBYism, we have to be seen as partners not yeah, and NIMBYism, as you know, is a local issue. Uh, it's not, you know, you try and make it a national issue, but the federal government doesn't have right. uh, control no over 
over land use uh, policy in, yep. in different states and counties and municipalities. It's still the public, though. So to, in my mind, I agree with you totally. We had the, a YIMBY on the podcast a month ago, one of my favorite conversations, leading YIMBY in the country. So listen in. But, um, it, but it's still the general population who doesn't like the word developer, doesn't like the word landlord. And so I think we have work to do to uh, reclaim or for the first time claim that we're partners here. But before we go to the last question, Greg, any comments on what you see in the future? We've talked a lot about change through this whole conversation, but if you look out 10 years and look to your successor, what will those changes mean? Any, any thoughts about that? I do think when I'm done, we will have seen the full transition to the democratization of real estate that we're talking about it'll be a different business and and GID will be a lot larger company. Mm -hmm. I do think when I look at my secession and I look at the younger generation here within the company, we now are getting big enough that we actually have the bench strength internally that I think our executive committee will be filled largely with people who have come up through the company Mm -hmm. and been here. Same with the CEO transition. But I I think something you and Bob were just talking about will be important. Even after I retire, we will need to find the right person who is not just the steward of the company, but also helps with the stewardship of the industry. Because I think what you all touched on is important, right? The residential sector in the United States has exogenous pressures and constituencies that we need to satisfy. Yep. And I think that will be an, an ever-increasing outside force on how we operate the companies. And, you know, Jeff Immelt at GE used to say something that I liked where he said, in order to be a great company, first you have to be a good company. And I think that's going to be important for the next generation of leaders, right? There's a social element to what we do and a need to satisfy the greater good and not just profits that I think is felt within our employee base, within our ownership group, and certainly within our investor base. We haven't talked about climate. We haven't talked about diversity. We haven't talked about too much about housing shortage, but we just brought that in. But you're operating in the world there where those mandates totally exist and for good reason. And it's amazing how much of my time I spend on those things, right? ESG and sustainability and our diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are really important to all of our stakeholders. And let me ask you a question about that. Is it window dressing or is it real? And what's the difference between window dressing and real caring about those topics? So I think some of it's window dressing, right? I have said, if you're gonna make a net zero commitment to the world, then you're gonna satisfy it by paying for carbon offsets. Right. I think that's silly. So we are, really trying to focus on tangible things that we can do differently. We're not focused on window dressing. It wouldn't be authentic to our people if we did. So I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the things, Matt, we focus the most on is we have a large Spanish-speaking population here, and we made a commitment to take every person in our company who wants it and teach them English as a second language And we've gotten such great response from it. We said, look, we'll teach your spouses. If you make the commitment to learn and do this, and this can change your life and your 
kind of career trajectory here. We're going to invest in all of you. And so we're doing things, I think, that are authentic and that our people are telling us are important from the ground up. So I hope and pray we do it the right way, because I think if you make a bunch of public statements like people did after George Floyd, right. and then you don't actually operationalize it or change what you're doing, I think it backfires in a big way. So we're trying not to make a bunch of big statements, and we're trying to just show people some key actions. So, hey, last question always on Leading Voices. Is your advice to a young person entering the real estate business? And Bob, I'm going to start with you. Well, I'd say, look, be be more patient than your generation seems to be. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the generation coming out of college today or business school seems to have a bit of ADD and they want instantaneous gratification. It, it just is unrealistic to expect that. So I'd say focus primarily on finding a firm that has a vibrant, robust culture that aligns with your own personality and your own set of values. Once you do that, then make sure that any task that somebody asks you uh, to undertake, you execute to the very best of your ability. Even if you think the task is beneath your capabilities, just do the best you can at any given moment. Be patient enough to absorb everything, learn from the people who have something to teach you in the organization. Now, don't be so patient that if you find yourself in a toxic environment, uh, you should leave. But understand what you're trying to achieve from a long-term basis. And to Greg's earlier point, you spend more time in the office than you do with your family. So make sure that you're working with people that, that you like, that you enjoy spending time with, and it'll all work out. Cool. Greg. So I couldn't agree more with Bob on virtually every one of those points, but uh, I'll give you something uh, atypical that you probably don't hear. And I have been speaking with the company about this an awful lot, and it really has to do with optimism and risk-taking. So if you look over the past century in America, the stock market has had 75 positive years and 25 negative years. And returns during those good years were 50% more positive than the bad years were negative. So that long-term trend is actually understated. Yet, as an investor, judgment and prudence is crucial, and it's easy to be pessimistic or focus on downside risks. And when you do, you seem sensible and wise, because it is sensible and wise. And optimism, conversely, can sound cavalier, and people can seem ignorant of risks. But the great lesson of history is that you have to take risks and be optimistic. And the future is invariably going to be better than the past. And the data proves it time and again. So the simple message I have for all of the people in our company, young and seasoned, is to go for it and take risks and believe deeply in what you're doing and commit to it and know that the future is going to be brighter for those who really go after it and look at the glass as half full all the time. And I wrote in a letter to employees something similar, that that was Bob's greatest legacy for the company, was just this amazing optimism 
and belief that the company could do anything and the people in the company more specifically could force that achievement through you know the sheer willpower they had so that's been my message for the year and i find myself giving myself that advice to make sure i live by <laughs> absolutely it's a hard one to keep that in mindset especially when times go bad yeah hey guys this has been a wonderful conversation so thank you very very much really really appreciate well, thank, both thanks of you. for having us matt appreciate it very much cool it's always great talking to you matt thanks yeah thank you thank you for listening into leading voices and i hope that you enjoyed today's episode i have a request if you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable please share it with a friend or two if they're podcast wary take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen you'll change their life Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.